Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. Today's guest is author and journalist Michael Pollan. Michael is a professor at the UC Berkeley Graduate School of Journalism. He's written several books that have irrevocably shifted our collective culture, including The Omnivore's Dilemma, How to Change Your Mind, and This Is Your Mind on Plants. He's just released a four-part Netflix series based on his research on the psychedelic renaissance. It's a fascinating look into the historical and scientific context of LSD, psilocybin, MDMA, and mescaline. We talked about the relationship between humans and plants and how Michael initially became interested in psychoactive plants as an avid gardener. I was curious to ask Michael about caffeine and why he says giving it up proved to be more difficult than any psychedelic experience he's had. We also talked about what was unearthed for him during a powerful psilocybin experience and why he believes MDMA is useful for couples therapy. So let's get to my chat with Michael Pollan. So I'm thrilled to talk to you for the Goop podcast. I absolutely loved This Is Your Mind on Plants. The first kind of section of the book focuses around an article that you wrote in the 90s, right? For yeah. Harvard. And so it struck me that you've really been pursuing this relationship with man between man and plants for quite some time. I have actually. Yeah. I mean, a lot of people think that my interest in psychedelics is kind of a right turn, you know, right angle turn. But in fact, it goes way back since I started gardening, really. I mean, all my writing begins in the garden. I started gardening as a little kid, but then seriously in my late 20s. And I was so taken with all the different things you could do in a garden, including growing cannabis and growing opium, and how amazing it is that plants produce chemicals that just so happen to fit in these receptors in our brains and change our experience. So yeah, it's a longstanding interest. And I've also been interested in the drug war and how crazy the laws are around this. I mean, it seems to me what you do in your own garden is your own business, but the government has other ideas. Well, that was really fascinating to me too, understanding, you know, through your opium story. And then I suppose it would be under the same thing in the masculine story that there's a clear delineation in the eyes of the law between growing something, you know, for its beauty, or if you're growing it with intent to create yeah. opium. And, and the state of your mind, the mens rea is the Latin term for it, de determines whether you're breaking the law or not. So if you don't know that papaverse omniferum is a controlled substance, that's the you know Latin name for opium poppies, you're fine. But as soon as you know, or they can prove that you know, you're screwed. And technically you are committing what is a very serious crime. And I was shocked to learn that. And it led to a whole summer of fear and paranoia in the garden. 
It's a fabulous story. So is the hypothesis that these plants did develop molecules that fit perfectly into our receptors as evolutionary tactics? Like why would a plant create an opium molecule? Yeah. Yeah. So it goes back to this fact that plants, unlike animals, can't move, right? So they have to do everything stuck in place. They're sessile is the term for it. And so if you can't move, you then rely on chemistry to do everything for you, which is to say, attract animals to you. So they'll do work for you as they attract bees and then repel them with various chemicals. And they're, they've been ingenious in creating these chemicals. They're usually alkaloids and they're almost always bitter, which suggests that one of their functions is to not taste good and repel insects that way. But as to why they mess with our minds in interesting ways, my theory is, and it is just a theory, is that if they created toxins that were so lethal that they just killed their pests, they would very quickly select for resistance in the mm -hmm. same way that you know antibiotics do or powerful human-made pesticides. Eventually, the plants figure out how to, just by the luck of the draw, there are certain members of the pest population that aren't affected, and then they take over, and then you've lost your tool. How much better is it to use that chemical to just kind of cause the animal to forget what it's doing, forget where it is, lose its appetite, just get confused? And my insight into this was very personal. I had a cat. When I started gardening in Connecticut, I had this fenced off garden and I had this cat named Frank and I planted catnip for Frank and cat and Frank really liked catnip. He had a real, <laughs> he had a real problem with catnip. And every evening in the summer, when I was going down to pick a salad or, or harvest something for dinner, he would follow me into the garden and he'd look up at me and I realized he'd forgotten just since yesterday where the catnip plant was. And I actually had to like, pick him up and show him. And that made me realize that in addition to getting him, you know, kind of wasted, the plant was messing with his memory. So I think basically these chemicals were not evolved to affect us necessarily, but it happened that they were evolved to have some mental effects on mm -hmm. insects or mammals, as well as the bad taste. Caffeine's a, a great example. Caffeine is a pesticide produced by, you know, a handful of plants. And when we figured out that it gave us energy and focus and that we liked what it did to us, that then became the plant's strategy for you know, world domination because what had been this shrub that lived only in Ethiopia in you know, Eastern Africa now has this band of habitat you know, girdling the world. So, it, you know, it's, so it's a mix, it's not intention on the part of the plants, but when something works in evolution, it catches on in a big way. In the book, you talk about opium in the beginning and then caffeine, of course, and then it goes into the peyote and masculine, masculine section, yeah. which I'm very excited to ask you a lot about, but I had never really pondered caffeine as a molecule and its impact on us as a society and on a species. It almost struck me that it's become like this evil tool of capitalism because. Yeah, I mean, it served capitalism very well by making us better workers, but it served us too. I make a case in the book that it, you know, it gave us the age of reason and all sorts of scientific progress and the enlightenment, you know, this whole new way of thinking that was characterized by rationality. So, yeah, I mean, it probably offered more to capital than labor, if you want to put it in Marxist terms, but that's why our bosses give us coffee breaks, you know, think of it. I mean, we get a, a free drug from the people we work for and then time in which to enjoy it. That's pretty extraordinary, but I don't think it would happen unless it was serving the employers. And it does serve the employers. We, we work better. So the coffee break is a very telling institution, I think. Yes, but it also, you know, I mean, it really has made us kind of disrupt our circadian rhythms. It forces us, you know, not forces us, but it really propels us into lots of productivity and things that really do benefit a capitalist structure. Yes. And an advanced civilization as opposed to, I mean, you're right. It in a way takes us out of a natural state. And the natural state was, of course, being tied to the cycles of the sun. 
and that people for a very long time got up when the sun got up and went to sleep when it went down. And mm. the idea of staying up all night was kind of crazy. And so what caffeine did was allowed us to disconnect and kind of conquer night and, you know, stay up late. And this also was a boon because we could work harder and longer and, you know, have an overnight shift and all that kind of stuff. So I, you know, I remember asking Roland Griffith, who was, you know, the world's leading authority on caffeine as well as psilocybin, interestingly enough, did he think caffeine on balance was a boon or a bane to humanity? And he had a very interesting answer. He said, well, insofar as you support the whole project of civilization, it's probably positive. It gives us all the blessings of civilization, such as they are. But if you think of us as animals, you know, as creatures in nature, it, it biologically, it may not have been the best thing because messing with our sleep is a real problem with caffeine. I mean, it's the only problem that I could find. I mean, basically it's a, there are a lot of positives in terms of caffeine for your health. Let's get number. into those because okay. you know, as a coffee addict mm -hmm. and, it, and enjoying my cup of green tea here, is it true that there's a distinction to be made between the benefits of the caffeine molecule from coffee or versus tea? So it's the same molecule. One thing I heard, and I, I didn't chase it down and was never able to fact check it, but that there's another compound in green tea that specifically evens out the, the way your body gets the caffeine so that you don't get the jolt. And it also doesn't keep you up as much. That certainly squares with my experience. I drink a lot of green tea and I've never had quite the jolt from any kind of tea that, that you get from, from coffee. But I was, yeah, I wanted to check out, you know, I'd heard lots of negative things about caffeine. And I came to think it's kind of our Puritan inheritance that something we like so much must be bad for us. Right. <laughs> but the current scientific thinking is that it's more good than bad, with mm. one exception I'll get to, that it's protective against many kinds of cancer. Because it's full of antioxidants, right? Yeah. And this was kind of an amazing discovery in my research that, in fact, the leading source of antioxidants in the American diet today is coffee and tea. That is, that's astounding. I don't think it's that the coffee and tea are so impressive. It's just that we're not eating enough plants because all plants have antioxidants. Right. And so I think it's, I think it's a real symptom of the fact that we're not getting enough antioxidants from the place we should get it, which is our food. Right. We're so woefully underserved. <laughs> we really are. We really are. I mean, that's one of the big changes in the modern diet that I think is, and the move to ultra processed food. It's just driven plant material out and you don't get lots of antioxidants from grain and that's essentially the only plants we're eating so anyway so there so the benefits of are really probably coffee and tea not caffeine per se the mm -hmm. health benefits we also know that caffeine improves our memory that if you have caffeine after you've studied for a test you will perform better you will remember better it improves our endurance it improves our focus has a lot of benefits. No wonder it's caught on the way it has. But the negatives are that if you have caffeine too late in the day, it messes with your sleep. And specifically, a kind of sleep that's particularly important, what is called deep or slow wave sleep. This isn't when you're dreaming or this isn't REM sleep. This is this very deep state of sleep where a lot of very important brain hygiene happens where you basically store memories in their proper places and you kind of clean the desktop. Mm -hmm. And lack of this kind of sleep does correlate with lots of other health problems. Does it automatically happen? I think it's very different individual to individual. I think as you get older, you already are getting less deep sleep. So, you know, you have less to spare. But you know, the sleep experts I consulted, well, first of all, the alarming thing about that was most sleep experts I consulted don't use caffeine. <laughs> so they have pretty strong feelings about it. Matt Walker, who's a prominent sleep researcher. Yes, I've interviewed him before. He's you have. Wonderful. Yeah, yes. he's great. He's kind of a Puritan on the subject of sleep, however. And he really <laughs> kind of scared the hell out of me. But subsequently, I've talked to him and he's kind of softened his message. And he thinks that having some caffeine in the morning is fine and that you got to live a little, as he says. <laughs> 
Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Have you seen that meme that went around for a while that says like, cutting out coffee from your diet will absolutely with 100%, you know, accuracy, remove any fucking joy that you have left in your life. (laughs) It's very good. Yeah. So we do have to balance joy against this kind of information, but I'm, you know, I came out of it thinking, you know, I gave up caffeine for three months as part of the writing to to understand what it meant to my, to me and to really get to the bottom of my relationship with this plant. And it was very hard to do, I have to say, you know, it was a lot easier having the psychedelic experiences I was having than giving up my caffeine experience. But I came out thinking, you know, if if I have caffeine up till about noon, that I'm not going to have a problem. And I think I sleep pretty well. So it's just keeping it, you know, not doing it late in the day, certainly not having that coffee after dinner, which some people can do and go to sleep, but it isn't clear whether they're getting the right kind of sleep. I did love how you articulated going back off the wagon yes. after three months. And you said something like you were intoxicated on sobriety or something like that. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of amazing. It's kind of worth doing just to have that experience to give it up even just for a week. And the coffee experience or tea experience you have when you're kind of a caffeine virgin again is just very different than the morning pleasure you get as someone who has it every day. Because what's going on when you have it every day is you're basically, the pleasure you're getting is the relief from the symptoms of withdrawal. You're starting to feel a little tetchy and uncomfortable and not quite yourself. And then you have the coffee and you're like, ah, that feels really good. It's a different experience if you don't have any caffeine in your body and you're not going through withdrawal and it's euphoric. It was just one of the more powerful drug experiences I've had. And I couldn't believe it was legal, but you can't, you know, you can't do that every day. So it's a good experiment. I recommend it. I'm going to try. I've only ever stopped drinking coffee when I've had the flu or COVID or something. Yeah. Where you lose your taste for it. It's true. Although you can, I find I can still drink green tea in those circumstances. But if you taper rather than go cold turkey, it's much easier to do. I wanted to go cold turkey to see what it would be like so I could describe it. But I've since been told if if you just kind of cut your caffeine load in half and then in half and then in half over the course of a couple of days, you can get off it without a lot of suffering. The headache is really what's hard for, I always get a caffeine withdrawal headache whenever I Yeah, that is not pleasant. No. So opium is not considered, it's not classified as psychedelic, right? It's an opiate. It's a downer or depressant. In the book, uh, I wanted to do the three main classifications of drugs. And those are stimulants, depressants. The stimulant Mm -hmm. is caffeine, obviously. The depressant is opium and a hallucinogen. uh, And that was mescaline. So I was trying to represent the big classes. Right, right. And you've really been an incredible pioneer in the subject. And it's, I mean, it's, I've read a lot of the research on psilocybin and MDMA for post-traumatic stress, et cetera. And it's really astonishing to see how efficacious these modalities are. First of all, how did your interest kind of get peaked in them? What, what were the connective tissues there to kind of yeah. get on this path? Well, I came to psychedelics with very little experience. I didn't do psychedelics when I was in college or in the years after when most people are introduced to them. There was a weird wrinkle, which is I happened to go to a college where there didn't seem to be any LSD around. I don't know what happened in the 70s. It shouldn't have been like that. Go to college. I went to Bennington College, a very progressive little college where you would expect 
And I understand there was quite a bit of LSD before I got there and quite a bit after I left. But Or quite uh, a bit of cocaine after you left. Well, yes, say. that too. But when I was there, it was just drinking. That, that was, you know, there was only one pothead on campus. It does sound like a very magical place, though. I have oh, to it's say. the best. It's a very special place. I mean, I learned to write there because I had teachers that were just so dedicated and such good editors. But anyway, so I didn't have the usual experience of psychedelics. It was really back in 2013 or so that I started getting you know, my journalistic antenna went up, that something was happening around psychedelics. Right. I had been at this dinner party I described in How to Change Your Mind and in the Berkeley Hills. And I hear this woman who's like in her 60s and she's down at the other end of the table. And I hear she's talking about her LSD trip. And she's not talking about college. She's talking about like last week. And it's like, well, that's interesting. People like that are doing LSD. And she was also talking about how um, it gave her insight into the mind of children. And that was one data point. And then I saw a piece in the Times that, about a study going on at NYU to give psilocybin to cancer patients to help mm -hmm. them deal with their what the doctors called their existential distress. And they right. were getting good results. And I thought, that's curious. What a weird idea to give psychedelics to people who were dying of cancer. So I pitched a story to an editor at The New Yorker, and he commissioned me to look at that study. And I began interviewing people who had these guided psychedelic experiences. I mean, it's very different than the than what people think that you just take a tab of acid and go off. But no, these are very controlled, supervised experiences. And their stories were incredible. You know, that a single drug experience could completely change their mindset about their death and give them an equanimity that was astonishing and allow them to die in peace in, in many cases. So I was, I became very interested in like, what is that experience? What would it be like? I also became a little envious of the fact that these people had had powerful spiritual experiences and I had never had one, not that I was aware of. So that kind of, you know, pricked my curiosity. And in the course of writing that article, I decided I wanted to write a book because there was so much to learn about it. And that became How to Change Your Mind. Okay. So Omnivore's Dilemma was before that then. Yeah, Omnivore's Dilemma was 2006. And Is it I wrote, all that time ago now? Wow. Yeah, it goes back now. It's like a long time ago. I had written that and a series of books about food, mm -hmm. starting with Omnivore's Dilemma, which was really about agriculture and the origins of the food chains that feed us. And then I wrote In Defense of Food, which was really a deep dive into like, what should we eat if we care about our health? And then Food Rules was kind of a spinoff from that and then cooked. So I did four books on food. But you did a book also with your siblings, a cookbook. Cookbook, yes. Well, they really did the cookbook. I just wrote the introduction. Oh, well, it's a great <laughs> book. I actually really love that book. Yeah, well, they did two. One is called Pollen Family Table. And then they did a book called Mostly Plants. Which That's is the about, one that I have and love. Yeah, I think it's great. I it's cook wonderful. out of that all the time. It's really um, good. Yeah. Now my sisters and my mother are all, we're all passionate about food. And, and the yeah. reason we care about it is she, you know, we had family dinner every night. She just cooked every night. Yeah, that's what we did. And, and it's, you know, that's just such an important part of our upbringing. So at what point then did you decide that you had to try psilocybin for yourself? Well, when I decided I was going to do a book, it seemed imperative that I get inside the experience or get as close to it as I could. I mean, it's kind of just the way I write. I mean, when I was writing Omnivore's Dilemma, I bought a cow and followed it through the whole process. <laughs> and when I wrote a book on architecture, so I built a house. I, I like to be, I like to immerse myself in a story. There's something you get from the perspective of someone doing something for the first time that is just absolutely irreplaceable. You, there's a quality of wonder and awe and first sight that you'll never have again. And so if I can do something for the first time in a book, it just, it, I love writing about that. I mean, it just, from a narrative point of view, and it gives you lots of humor also because you're usually a fish out of water. And so for me, it helps me build a narrative. So at this point, my readers expect if I'm gonna write a book on psychedelics, I'm gonna take psychedelics. I think they would be disappointed. <laughs> If I didn't. And but I had a series of, you know, really interesting experiences and surprising in many ways and helpful in many ways psychologically. On and, psilocybin? Yeah, I would say 
I mean, yes, my psilocybin experiences were the big ones for me. That didn't have to be the case. I could have gotten to the same place with LSD, I think, but I was working with guides who were using psilocybin and, and it's a, you know, it's a gentler drug that doesn't last quite as long. Mm -hmm. LSD can last 12 hours. And if you're having a bad time, that's a very long time. No, thanks. I'm not, I'm not. I'm desperate to try psilocybin. I'm just a little bit scared of, I guess I'm, I, maybe I'm conflating like the LSD experiences I've heard about with psilocybin and this kind of hallucinogenic visions that can go very wrong. And I had a friend who t- took a lot of psilocybin and, and went through a deep kind of nightmare experience. So is that common or what is it doing? Is it kind of unearthing what's in the soil that you haven't tended to and released? <laughs> like That's a pretty good metaphor. We don't know exactly what it's doing. It can surface, you know, uh, unhappy memories. I mean, there are people who get in touch with childhood traumas. And that's one reason you want to have somebody with you. And I'm a great believer that if you're going to do a serious dose of psilocybin, you should never do it alone. And you what is do a serious it. dose? A serious dose is, you know, upward of three grams of dried mushrooms, okay. five being a really big dose. I've never had more than four, I think. But, you know, for me, that was an ego dissolving dose, which was mm. quite powerful. But if you are with an experienced guide and you do get into trouble, they can guide you out of it. There are some kind of proven ways to get through a bad patch. And it's not unusual to have a bad patch. And they can be very productive. If the you bad have some Yeah. Because if you have someone who can interpret it, like, mm-hmm. you know, why did you go to that place where your father turned into a monster? You know, it, it's it's not a product of the drug. It's a product of your mind. The drug is only the is is only the catalyst. Right. So it means something. Whatever comes up means something. And you need help sometimes making meaning because it can be very confusing. But I think also the key, if you have a guide that you trust, you can surrender to the experience. And that really is the key. People seem to get into trouble when they resist what's happening, when they hold on, you know, when they just cannot deal with the loss of control of your mental contents. I'm kind of a control freak, so I thought I would have a lot of trouble with that. But I found that it's, it may have been the you know, skill of the guide I was with and the environment I was in. I felt very safe, and I just kind of surrendered to it. And mm-hmm. that turned out to make all the difference, because I did have, I described in How to Change Your Mind, this experience of seeing my ego just explode in a cloud of post-it notes. And I was like gone. And yet I was observing the fact I was gone, but from a new perspective I had never had before. It was very odd, but it felt right. It felt Mm. kind of beautiful. I had no problem with the fact I didn't exist. And that was followed. You know, when you lose your ego, your ego is kind of a barrier, right? It's a membrane around you. It protects Mm. you and it's very important to our survival and success, but it also distances us from nature, from other people, from all sorts of things. And when it goes away, you have this permeability, You're, you merge with something larger than yourself. And for me, it was a piece of music. And I had, you know, the guide played this Bach uh, unaccompanied cello suite, and I just merged with the music. It wasn't a subject object relationship. I just was it. And it was astounding. And it wasn't like, you know, it was a sad piece of music, but I just felt so connected in a way I never had before. So that was a great experience, but parts of it were scary, but I felt safe. And I think that's really the key. I think that there's so much enthusiasm about psychedelics that we don't talk enough about the risks. And I'm glad you brought it up, but I mean, your own mind can be a scary place to go. (laughs) And Tell me about it. Uh, yeah. And so you, you, it's very good to have a Sherpa, a mind Sherpa with yeah. you. Did you have a catharsis? Did you find that it was healing? Is it something that you took with you throughout your life going forward? It's had lasting effect. I didn't go into it trying to fix anything like, okay, I'm going to deal with this addiction or I'm going to deal with this bad habit. Which I, some know. people do, right? And yes. there is evidence oh, yes. that it helps. And it helps. Yeah. yeah. No, I've talked to many people. I mean, whether... They took it because they were dealing with depression or there's a wonderful in the Netflix version of How to Change Your Mind. There's a wonderful story about a a young man who had obsessive compulsive disorder. And this was like a ball and chain he'd been dragging around since he was 10 years old. And it was just getting in the way of 
you know, being able to have a family and, you know, live. Mm-hmm. And a single psilocybin experience in which he experienced a kind of death. He describes dying and going underground and then coming up and being reborn as a sapling and then a tree. And then his young son and his wife walk by and, and he offers them a branch. It's, it's this beautiful oh story. Gosh. And this one four-hour experience lifted this burden from his shoulders for all time. I mean, it's amazing. So the, the power to heal is real. I think that, but people have to be careful because they're playing with something very powerful. It's not recreational. I mean, right? No, it's it's very hard work. I mean, there are non-therapeutic reasons to do it. People do it for spiritual reasons too, and that's completely legitimate. But people shouldn't go into it thinking this is just fun. It isn't often fun at a high dose. It's work, but it's really interesting work. And you learn things about yourself and you learn things about the natural world. It's a very meaningful experience. Mm -hmm. And I feel very lucky to have had them but to be able to have them in such a safe way with a guide. Mm -hmm. And I do think that makes all the difference. That said, though, there are guides who are unscrupulous. And so you have to be careful in choosing somebody and really make sure, you know, they're not setting, sending off any red flags that you trust them. And this is true in all kinds of therapy, but there, you know, there is, there are cases of therapist abuse. And this has happened all through the history of, you know, psychotherapy, but their particular vulnerabilities when someone's on a psychedelic. Mm-hmm. And especially when someone's using something like MDMA or ecstasy, which is also being used to treat trauma with great success. Yeah. On the other hand, it forms such a powerful bond with the therapist that an unscrupulous therapist can take advantage of someone. Mm-hmm. And that has happened. Further complicated by the fact that none of this is legal. I know there are FDA yeah. trials happening, so it's not like you can Google, you know, reputable. Right. I know comments. Yelp is not rating people yet. Um, <laughs> so you have to depend on personal introductions and interviews. I would never work with someone I hadn't interviewed, mm-hmm. and it's the same. It's just like picking a shrink. I mean, you have a sense of whether you can communicate with this person, whether you have a bond with them, or they're kind of creepy. You know, <laughs> you have to trust your instincts on that. But yes, it is. That's a vulnerability. It's it is illegal, and there's no way to discipline people who are unscrupulous. You can't, you know, take away their license or anything. But you know, it's changing quickly. I mean, next year in Oregon, you will be able to have, you know, legal guided psilocybin experiences. They passed a ballot resolution, and that will be a regulated process. So we'll see how that goes. I think it's a really interesting experiment. Yes, and I'm sure people will be watching it closely. And I'm sure there will be people who, you know, whose interest, shall we say, it might not serve for it to go well, you know, we'll see what happens. Um, So far, there has not been a lot of pushback. It'll be interesting. I mean, because it's still a federal crime. And so the FDA could shut this down like that. But Mm -hmm. they don't seem inclined to I think they're interested in the experiment, because we're gonna have to figure out how to do this in other places. And so, so far they have been neutral on the subject and it looks like they're going to let it go forward. Right. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. So in terms of the different psychedelics, hallucinogenics, what is the kind of trajectory you've had in terms of the order that you've done them? You know, because actually I was reading about your masculine experience and it sounded quite beautiful and gentle. And I, in my mind, I had always thought of it as another violent, you know, potential, really scary thing. But I wondered if it was because potentially you had cleared already so much with your experiments. No, I don't think so. I mean, I think mescaline is gentler. I think that, you know, it's doesn't really produce hallucinations. I found that I was in more in control, even though I had very unusual perceptions. It's funny, I went into it. So this was a pandemic experience. And I, like everybody else, was feeling very claustrophobic, could not travel, could barely leave the house for a while. And it seemed like a perfect time to trip, you know, that this would allow you to travel without traveling. And I kind of approached it that way. But I was sort of surprised that unlike psilocybin or LSD, it didn't take me out of my head to some whole new place, it kind of immersed me in the here and now more deeply than I had ever been immersed. And we had rented this very cool little house that was on stilts over over a body of water. So every window was filled with views of either sky or water, just beautiful spot. And the drug came on and took a while. It took like 45 minutes or so. 
And I was reading at the time. And I looked up from my book and was like, oh, reading, print. This Look at those ugly black marks. <laughs> I can't believe we spent so much time studying these ugly black marks. Of course, this is my profession, is <laughs> putting those down. But I just wanted to look at things. I didn't want symbols. I just wanted to look at the water and the swimmers in the water and the pelicans. And I was just like hungry for visual experience. I just feasted on everything I could see. I remember staring in a bowl of apricots for like an hour. And they just had so much significance. And it was this sense of you shouldn't be questing for anything more than what you have, that there is a great sufficiency to the reality immediately around you. And that if you just figured out how to look at it, how to study it, it would satisfy all your curiosity. It would answer to all your needs. And it was a wonderful feeling. There were periods when it was a little overwhelming at the, at the peak, but for most of it, it was a very meditative experience. It's too bad Mescaline's not around more. I mean, it's, it's very hard to come by. And I'm not sure why exactly, except you do have to ingest more material than with LSD. LSD is, you know, doses of LSD are measured in micrograms, which is, you know, millionths of a gram. And in an illicit market, you want drugs to be as small and light as possible because you're hiding them. Right. Whereas, and you need like 400 milligrams, which is like two full capsules. So that might explain it, but it was an interesting experience, but it was not my first. I mean, it would have, yeah, it would have been a good entree probably. I think MDMA is a really good entree. It is not a hallucinogen. It is a wonderful drug for conversation. I think its future will be in couples therapy. I had with my wife, to the two, two times we've done it, we just talked and talked and there was no subjects that were off limits. There was no defensiveness, no antagonism. It really allowed you to broach difficult topics. And there's this quality of trust. There's an oxytocin release that's associated with it. And it was, you know, wonderful. I mean, it, so it wasn't an internal journey, although some people can do that on MDMA at a higher dose. But there are guides who use MDMA first and then give you mescaline in the same session. And it's called candy flipping, I think. And what happens, I think, is the MDMA removes any anxiety you have about the psilocybin experience. So you go into it in a very positive frame of mind. So, so there's a kind of logic to it. Okay. Um, is there anything that you haven't tried yet that you that's on the agenda? <laughs> I don't know if it's on the agenda, but there are things I haven't tried yet. DMT, I haven't tried yet, which oh, is a right, very the, short right acting. Frog no, no, this, no, not the frog. Oh. I, did do, I did do the toad, 5-MeO DMT, which I would not recommend to anyone. That was truly terrifying. What happened? You just take one puff of this thing in a pipe. It's vaporized. You know, it's the, just so you know, or your listeners know, it's the, the venom of the Sonoran Desert toad that is dried, crystallized, and then smoked. It's a very odd, I mean, who figured that out, right? Right. I don't know. And it's not that ancient, actually. It was who figured, figured out this, all this out, right? Yeah, like, well, people tried everything. They were hungry, they were desperate. But thinking you should smoke the venom of a, of a Sonoran desert toad, I don't know. It, that takes some creativity. And it hits you very quickly. And for me, it produced this sensation that I was... Uh, in the middle of a storm that it, my, my mind, there was no imagery except there was just pure energy. I felt like I was in the middle of a hurricane or a rocket taking off. It was like shuddering and just like waves of energy. And it was really terrifying. I was totally disoriented. I had no body. I had no, anyway, I, you know, I've since been told by people with more experience of it that I either had too much or not enough not very right. helpful. Well, maybe uh, you'll not try that again. I, I am. Out. I am not inclined to try that again, <laughs> but DMT itself, by the, just the three letters by themselves is a fairly short acting tryptamine, which means it's in the class of either LSD or psilocybin. This is the drug on which people have entity encounters. Many people report seeing machine elves. I know. What are they? Well, they're beings from another dimension, according to some people, or it's just a shared hallucination. It's very odd, though, that on this one particular drug, hundreds of people, thousands of people report seeing the same entities. And why should that be? 
I don't know. It's kind of a mystery of DMT that I'm curious about. There's something called salvia divinorum I've never tried. There's still a bunch I've never tried. And there are all these designer chemicals I've never tried. So, and I don't know that I will. You know, it is illegal. And my reason for doing it was journalistic. And yeah, I'm still curious. If the drugs were made legal, and they may well be soon, I can, the, the two ways I would use them is once a year, I would take a big sort of, psilocybin journey. I mm-hmm. think that would be really useful on your birthday to kind of take stock of where you are and mark the year. I mm-hmm. think that I would do that. And the other thing I would do is once a year do a MDMA experience with my wife. I think that would also be very useful in a different way. And that would be it. I think that that would satisfy me. I'm glad to, I'm glad to know that. I'm, you know, <laughs> I consider you the real expert here. You're in the field. So I guess so. I mean, I'm still a, you know, I'm a newbie compared to some people in this world. You know, as you just mentioned, these things are illegal. And in reading the book, you talk about these ladies campaigning against alcohol during prohibition because of how it made their husbands and yet drinking their opium tea at the end of the day or coffee houses becoming briefly illegal in England or the Native American people having to fight to retain their right to take peyote as part of their religious ceremony. And it struck me that there are always these societal impingements on plants and plant medicine. And I just, I wanted to get from you, why, what is the threat? Like, why is there always some kind of governmental intervention or societal, you know, shame around these powerful chemicals that plants, nature, I mean, we're talking about things that, as you say, grow in your garden, provide. Yeah, it's a good question. Many societies have had plants and plant drugs and fungal drugs that they have banned. All societies have drugs that they're okay with, and they draw these lines, and they draw them in ways that can seem very arbitrary. So coffee and tea and alcohol are fine, and tobacco are, are fine in our culture, even though Tobacco and alcohol kill a lot more people than any other drug. And I think also, I think societies tend to view some psychoactives as threatening to the smooth working of society. And that certainly happened with LSD and other psychedelics in the 60s. They were threatening. They were contributing to the development of a counterculture, of a generation gap. They were fueling the anti-war movement, at least President Nixon thought so. So they were attacked, finally. Other drugs are seen as kind of lubricating the wheels of society. And caffeine is a great example of that. Although when it first arrived, and this is often the case with a new drug, there was a kind of a panic on the part of political leadership because people were gathering in coffee shops and having very political conversations. And so Charles II briefly tried to close them down and ban coffee. Everybody ignored him and (laughs) it didn't work. It was already deeply established. But the identity of drugs changes. You know, opium tea, which I talk about, you know, how to make in your garden, and it's a schedule one violation in this country, is routinely drunk in, in at funerals in the Middle East and other occasions. It's just kind of a mild, you know, horrific, I guess. And then you go to South America and people chew coca leaves the way we enjoy coffee with that no detrimental effect. And in fact, some very positive effects. It's very nutritious actually for chewing the leaves. It has tons of calcium. There's no osteoporosis there. And some people think it's because of their chewing coca leaves all the time. But, you know, drugs also can be made more intense. So the white powder drugs have special dangers that their plant versions don't. So Mm -hmm. I think it'd be very hard on chewed coca leaves or opium tea to really have a serious drug problem, you know, and certainly to overdose uh, would be very hard to do. But societies have always had this complicated relationship with these substances, and some are regarded as disruptive, and some are regarded as helpful. I think right now we're in the midst of a sea change with psychedelics, going from being viewed as a disruptive force that destroys young minds, the 60s story, now being completely remade as a medicine. It's the Mm -hmm. same molecule. So So drugs are highly contextual. And we have to look at them that way, that they're tools. They're not inherently good or evil. It really is how you use them. And the opiates are a great example. I mean, 
you know, we now regard opiates as, a, as an evil because of the opioid crisis and more than 100,000 people were killed from overdose last year. And it is a crisis. On the other hand, without opiates, it'd be very hard to withstand surgery and recover from surgery or even like dent, serious dental work. These are blessings and curses. And I think holding those two contradictory ideas in our head is difficult always. We always want one or the other. But the Greeks had it right. You know, they called drugs pharmakon, a word that means both blessing and curse. And Is they understood. Right? Yeah, isn't that great? So they got it. And they knew whether it was one or the other depended on how you used it and the dose. And they paid a lot of attention to that. You know, they would have their wine in tiny cups and they would, they used a psychedelic in some of their rituals. But you could only use that. It was called a kikion. No one knows what was in it, but it was some kind of psychedelic that they would, you could only have it at that ritual once a year. And if you were found with it any other time of the year, it was the death penalty. So they've created a container for these powerful substances. And that's what we need to do. You know, we're in the process of evolving a new container for psychedelics. And hopefully it'll be a really constructive one that will heal people and help them on their spiritual journeys. But that's the work of the next few years is creating that container. And how do you think, you know, without being too incendiary, big pharma will react to this, right? Because if, if we're talking about introducing medicines that are created and, you know, dispensed to heal, right? And to deal with OCD, trauma, depression, like that, that are essentially commodities and would be impossible to patent, but could potentially, you know, have people curbing other yeah. dependencies. Do you have any sense of how they're looking at this? You know, they have not gotten involved yet. I think their strategy, and this is based on some interviews I did, their strategy is to wait for some small company to figure out the business model. Right. And then they'll buy that company. <laughs> That's what passes for innovation among large corporations now. Uh, it's true in the food space too, right? I mean, they don't come up with new stuff. They just find little companies that do, and then they buy them. So I think they're watching and waiting, and nobody has figured out the business model. It's not going to be easy to fold psychedelic therapy into the system we have, because if you think about it, we either yeah. have you know talk therapy here, which is very expensive and fairly elite. And SSRIs. very long. And very long, yes, and slow to have effects. And then we have SSRIs that we give people without much supervision at all, antidepressants. And, that, the, and the health system loves that because it's really cheap. They're not as efficacious as I think. No, and they're, working, they're not working well at all anymore. And right. they, there are many people that don't help and people don't like the side effects. You put on weight, there's a loss of libido and they're addictive. They're very hard to get off of. So it's one of the reasons that psychiatry is so open to psychedelics right now, which is something I didn't expect. I expected a lot of pushback after I published How to Change Your Mind in 2018, but the reaction was the opposite. I mean, I was invited to speak to the American Psychological Association, and they were like desperate for new tools. If you compare mental health treatment to any other branch of medicine in the last, say, 40 or 50 years, you know, oncology, cardiology, infectious disease, they have all extended lifespan, reduced suffering, achieved amazing things. Mm -hmm. You can't say that for psychiatry. And in fact, in that period, mental health has gotten worse. Mm. So there, we need new tools desperately. And I think the profession knows it. But so how do we fold these things in? That's the hard part, because you need a lot of talk therapy with it. You know, you basically in the university trials now, you've got two guides for every patient couple hours of preparation. The two people sit with the patient for the whole trip, which can be six hours, and then a couple hours of integration afterwards, making sense of it. So it's a big investment of time. Although after that episode, they may need no more treatment. It doesn't go on and on and on. So it's a mix of pharmacology and talk therapy that, and we don't have a model for that. And there are different parts of the system. So it'll be challenging. You're right. It's very hard to patent these drugs because they've been around for a long time, but they're trying to patent delivery systems and whatever they can. I mean, they did this with ketamine. They tweaked the molecule, patent it, and then, you know, charge, you know, $400 a, a dose for something that should cost $5 a dose. I know you've approached us all from a very journalistic standpoint, but mm -hmm. do you feel that this has made you more 
spiritually connected or more more open in that way? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, I did have the experience I described of merging with that piece of music. I had another one in my garden of just kind of finding more the, the, the plants in my garden were more alive than I had ever imagined and had, a, you know, had their own point of view. It sounds crazy, but they seem more conscious than they had ever seemed. It definitely has had an effect on me. And I feel I have a little more distance on my ego than I used to. Most of us identify with our ego. We figure we're one and the same. And then when you watch your ego die and survive it, you realize, oh, maybe I don't have to listen to that guy all the time. (laughs) (laughs) And that's, you know, that's kind of freeing. And that's the kind of insight, of course, people have years of therapy trying to achieve. But in my case, you know, it happened in an afternoon. So yes, I mean, there have been lasting changes. I'm very happy to have had these experiences. I think a life where I hadn't had it would be less. And that said, you know, it's not for everybody. I I never want to suggest that everybody should go out and do this. You have to want to do it. There are these risks of, you know, you can have a very difficult time. And so people really need to have their eyes open. You said in the beginning, you know, oh, these plants just sort of like randomly developed certain molecules. But, you know, in reading your work and listening to, you know, experiences of others, and especially the use of these medicines in indigenous cultures that have, you know, connected them and the way that they impact trauma or the way that you can rethink something like, could it be evidence of God? (laughs) that's one interpretation i mean some people do have experiences of divinity and that's that happens i didn't i mean my you know it's funny i I used to think that being a spiritual person meant believing in supernatural things like gods and an unseen world and all this kind of stuff and so i it wasn't for me but i came to realize i was i didn't understand what spiritual meant The opposite of spiritual is not material. The opposite of spiritual is egotistical and that it is ego that keeps us from having spiritual experience, which is essentially this sense of openness and connection to something greater than ourselves. And depending on who you are, it might be the divine or it might be nature or it might be music or other people, but it's it's a self-transcendence. And Mm. there are other ways to get there, you know, I mean, experiences of awe in nature, some people get it spontaneously, meditation is another way. Um, Holotropic breath work, some people get. Yes, holotropic breath work is another way, yoga and uh, and fasting, and there's, you know, there, there are many ways to get to the top of the mountain. I think psychedelics represent a shortcut or a helicopter ride. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Michael Pollan. His book, This Is Your Mind on Plants, is now out in paperback. And be sure to catch his new Netflix series, How to Change Your Mind. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Spotify, 